I'm not crazy. I'm just not you. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum. On this episode of the podcast, we have Cam Hatch. Cam is the owner of Train Like a Savage and creator of The Program, where he helps pitchers rehab throwing injuries and throw gas. On this episode of the podcast, Cam takes us down the rabbit holes of just how he does that, how he implements ISOs and rebound type movements, why he believes there needs to be an arm care revolution, and how he balances his approach to the technical model of throwing with the instinctual nature that is required to throw fast. This is an amazing podcast with an even better dude, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for the continued support. Keep chopping wood. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with a Yoakum Strength Coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines that includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use Podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite-level guests to unravel what high performance really is. Hey, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, excited. Let's get after it, man. Let's go. Yeah, let's rip. Uh, we were just talking about how uh, you're you're uh, you're in a little bit warmer weather than me right now. We're in we're in minus eight Minnesota right now. Minus eight there, but. I tell you what, it's actually a little cold here in the, the Phoenix area. We've been getting a cold streak. I don't know if it's coming down from the north. I don't know if it's some of the, the Florida kids coming on in, bringing cold weather here, or Cowie kid. I don't know, man, but it's, it's cold out here. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. You're, you're still training outside, though, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. no. Yeah, I was going to say, it's pretty it's pretty, uh, pretty undoable right now, but uh, our goal is to move out somewhere sunny like that. But can you want to – Kind of tell the listeners about about your background and, and how you got into the world of pitching and how you got in the world of physical development. And then I've been sent your page a ton of times. You've been a really highly requested podcast guest on ever since we had the pitching doc on the podcast. And one of the things that they always talk about is like you look at the the, the way of developing a human for for these for these baseball athletes, and that's something that I see desperately missing. And why, why I've had a bunch of coaches like yourself on in the baseball world recently is. These, these baseball athletes, specifically pitchers, are kind of viewed as the fragile non-athletes. Like, your job is just to do this. And it's almost like we may, we went so far deep in the technical model and we, we can steal so many good pieces from the technical model that we we kind of miss what's right in front of us, which is that human athlete that you're developing. So can you kind of talk to us about how you got into the thought process of, okay, I have a human athlete in front of me. I'm going to develop him. And like, how are, how are you going about doing that? What What's kind of your process to get to there to kind of see the common sense that a lot of people are missing? So that comes from my own experience. It comes from me having Tommy John at the age of 19. 
coming out of high school and having to deal with that. Um, my, my surgery itself took four hours instead of an hour and a half. And, uh, I never got the surgery notes. So I never understood like, dude, what went wrong? And I still, to this day, like if you look at the palm of my hand or, or at least I feel it in the palm of my hand, like I still have issues through that nerve. Like that's where I still get sore. And my thumb was about numb for six months after the surgery. Um, so I don't know what happened there. So as far as like my perspective on kind of helping guys out, like that's where I come from. Cause I was that 19 year old kid that had our arm issues. And I went from that 17, 18 year old with those elite level dreams of making it to the MLB and getting drafted and all that stuff. And then I started training really, really hard. Um, up at Cresty Sports Performance when I was 17. I started there when I was 17 years old. And then, um, you know, I, I didn't understand why I had gotten injured, right? Um, so the inspiration for me and where I try to meet athletes at is being that 17-year-old, 18-year-old kid with those high aspirations and then crashing down, getting that surgery when I was real young and not fundamentally understanding why in the heck did this happen to me? So that's where I try to meet athletes at first. Yeah, that, that's freaking awesome. And all, almost every time we have a coach like yourself, it, it's like one of the best things and like how, how we have a real coach that is like realistic in what they're training for. It's because they, it's either they're currently going through it themselves. We've had a bunch of our core athletes on it where they're still training for it themselves or they, they went through it themselves. So it's like they're taking that textbook like, OK, I'm told to rehab this way. I'm told to train this way. I'm applying it to real life for a goal that I'm actually chasing. And I'm realizing, OK, this works but that doesn't. And, and just because the book says it like, cause you see these, you see PTs, you see strength coaches and they, they're saying things. It's like, you have never actually implemented that like to yourself be like, cause when you step up to the plate, when you step onto the mound, like when you step onto the court, like those things are not real and they're not really applying or you're trying to rehab from something and you're realizing that's not working, but having that real life experience really shows you, okay, this is worth keeping. This is worth going deeper on, but this just because it's written in a book is not working. Right. Absolutely. And so um, it's kind of that balance of not only from a physiological standpoint of being able to get your body ready for those stresses, right? Like you have to, like you have to prepare yourself to be able to go through that because throwing a baseball is, is stressful. Jumping really high is stressful. Like those tissues need to be ready for that. However, it's like, what's that differentiation? What's that fine line between, um, you know, the physiological preparation and mechanical adjustments and making sure that you're doing it the right way and understanding exactly what you're, you know, ultimately trying to do. And so this is a question I have, and I, I kind of like asking coaches like yourself that have been injured in the past, because they always say, they say the same thing you said, like, I got started in this rabbit hole because I didn't know what happened. I didn't know why, what I was missing. What do you feel like you were missing? And specifically with you, like you had the Cressy background, like you had in what most can, which can, it's not like this random high school background of just like the, the, you have a strength coach programming Russian volume to you when you're 14. Like you have a Cressy background, you have something that would be considered a high level background in training. What do you feel like was missing for you? Where where do you feel like the the stones were unturned that led to that issue? Right. So you know, I I thought it was initially strength. Um, so basically, I spent about 
probably three, four years trying to build my strength base. And I got to the point where I was deadlifting 585 on trap bar for reps. And, um, you know, from a, from a powerlifting standpoint, those metrics aren't that great, but for a baseball athlete, like that's stupid. That's insane. And I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to keep forging on to like 600, 650. I'll, I'll eventually throw hundred or 95. Like it'll just happen. Right. Um, and it didn't, I still had arm pain. I still was dealing with, um, a bunch of pain and a bunch of issues. I was so hard headed and so stubborn in college that I would literally long toss every day. Um, and, and I had after the surgery, so I had the surgery, I still had complications coming back. It took me 18 months to come back. And then when I got back, I was like, well, I'm going to do things different. I'm going to start long tossing, elongating, all that stuff. And I ended up having actually two stress fractures in my olecranon process because I was long tossing every single day. And like, I just kept doing it. <laughs> like, I remember coming back my, my redshirt freshman year, I came back, I started long tossing, I had a stress fracture. And then I was like, well, I'll just do it again <laughs> because more is better. And then I ran into another stress fracture and I was just like, well, what the heck is going on? Um, and so I thought it was like a training thing. I thought it was like a training stimulus itself. And what it ended up being really and truly looking back, and this took me years to find out, was um, it really did come down to how I was using my body mechanically. And that's something that I really didn't understand. And I still don't think that the industry fully understands what good sound, clean mechanics are. Now, I know that you um, mentioned not putting people in a box, um, making sure that everybody's individualized. And it is for sure. However, there is general checkpoint windows that you can use from a mechanical standpoint, um, from a physics standpoint to be able to kind of leverage the throw a little bit better and understand exactly what we're trying to do. Um, you know, not only from just, you know, purely physiological standpoint, but also from actual physics, like literal physics equations to get you to understand how to leverage the, the body a little bit better. So it is a little bit more mechanically efficient. Yeah. And that, that, that's something exactly that I want to talk to you about, because it does seem like you do a good job of, of balancing those, those two things, like being too far stuck in the box and, and teaching like the only way to throw is this way. Well, you're also doing some experiment. Like, I mean, you're doing stuff like throwing off a trampoline, you know, doing single leg throws. Like you're adding in that like differential learning approach, that constraint led learning approach with that technical model, which I, which is really where I think the magic kind of lies. But how do you, how do you create that magic yourself? How are you looking at an athlete in front of you to where you're not overstepping and being like, you need to throw this way because they say you throw this way. Where and you're also giving them the freedom to kind of like the, the find out the way that their body throws. Like, how are you looking at the athlete in front of you, realizing, okay, I need to give you a little bit more variability. I need to give you a little bit more movement options in your throw, or I need to. You, you already got that. I need to kind of structure you a little bit more into. We are missing the physics part of it. Like, how how are you balancing those two worlds? Because that's something I think uh, you do a really nice job of one talking about and two actually implementing and doing. Because you have some coaches that are only going to do one route of it and they'll ne they'll never look at the other route of it and then you have that the vice versa so what's that look like in your training model when you're looking at an athlete yeah so um it would start with an onboarding process of asking the athlete what they're going through and kind of 
how they're going about their throw, what they're working on, how they're interpreting it, how they're training for it. If you ask the athlete a lot of questions, a lot of those answers are your answers, right? Um, so if, if you, for instance, if I, if I ask a, a kid that I just started working with, like, hey, your, your, your back hips popping up, your shoulders are popped up, uh, pass, you know, basically up the mound instead of angled down the mound, right? Are you doing a lot of long toss in your programming? Is there a lot of, um, you know, throws where you're working up the hill? I, I don't, I don't know. I, I need to meet them where they're at and ask them the right questions to be able to get the answers so that we can make the changes that we need to, um, based upon that, the answers that they're giving me. Um, I know that's not really like a, a great answer as far as, um, you know, how I'm going to basically morph their entire throw. But like, first we need to get and meet them where they're at and understand what they're trying to do and how they're trying to implement it. And then I can give them the information and get them to start to see at least what I'm trying to get them to do. I would say it takes me about honestly, like two weeks, at least in person to like get guys on ramps as far as what I'm actually trying to get them to do from the throw. Awesome. And so now, now, now you're, you're picking out like what you want them to fix. How are you, how are you implementing actually fixing that piece and actually teaching them the skill? So you, you pick something out like the, like the, their hips and shoulders are popping up instead of through or downwards. Um, how are, how are you going about the process of actually fixing that? Cause the, 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 that's probably two different parts. Like you have coaches that are going to miss the, the singular part of like actually just picking up on what that athlete's missing out on and why they're missing out on it. But then you also have coaches miss out on the the, the aspect of fixing it. Like you, you can have a coach pointing it out, but how, how do you fix it? How do you make sure that change is staying? And then how do you add in the, the, the variability throws that you're adding in the, the differential learning approach throws that you're, you're adding in with the, some of the trampoline throws or the single leg throws, like how, how are you balancing that? And how are you actually going about changing that with the athlete? And what, what does that kind of process look to where, you know, it's sticking. For sure. So <clears throat> to understand the throw, we need to understand the general um, principles that we're trying to get them to do. Right. So there's there's three checkpoints that I look for. The shoulders have to be level or angled down at front foot strike. OK, um, the hips have to follow and then the ball is going to basically match the slope of the mountain. Right. Um, now, one thing that that people are, are very much missing the boat on is they're like, OK, it's all from the hips. Right. And the hips play a very, very important role. However, if you've ever done any side bending activity, what you'll start to notice is if my shoulders go, my opposite side hip has to follow. Like that's that spiral line of fascia that comes up. It's intermittently connected, right? And so <clears throat> if I start to move my shoulder up, like I'm, I'm a left-handed thrower. So if my right shoulder moves up, that left hip is going to pop out from underneath me. I'm no longer going to have that as my power source to be able to actually use that weight back here uh, over the rubber to be able to convert that down the mound, down the slope, right? Um, <clears throat> so to get guys to understand that, first and foremost, I typically go to the, to the one knee throw, okay? And the reason why I do that is because the one knee throw, you can understand everything or a lot of those things right you'll understand that i need to stay here like over my left leg to be able to understand my rotation 
Like I want my head to be connected basically to my knee, right? Then I can get my, <clears throat> I can get my glove side to be angled down and I can basically use my glove side and my front leg to use that connection, right? So that, that glove side is, is connected with the brace of the front leg. And then I can understand also, I can understand the flip up point of the ball. So from there, now my shoulders are angled down. I can basically brace with that front glove side and that front leg. My hands are basically going to rotate around my entire head without my head moving. And now I can just basically work on pulling that baseball down. So the one knee throw is like basically where I start with everyone. Because it, it just has so many of those principles of being able to basically line up the shoulders, what the hips are doing, and then the ball itself. So that's kind of where I start with everybody. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And setting them up into that environment in which like they're starting to just naturally get to what you want them to get to. But what's your kind of coaching process like then? Because it, is it is it like how do you balance that self-correcting you're saying that this so they can understand that when you when you have them throw in this one knee position are you 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 pointing out this is what i want you to feel is it having them throw and be like okay what did you feel there and then trying to explain it is it is it a lot of recording what's kind of that process like there and your your actual coaching process in you got them in this environment um and and i'm just thinking about some athletes it's like some athletes are going to put in that environment and they're gonna be like oh wow like that clicking moment like i notice that a lot myself it's like if if i give myself a certain sprint drill or a certain certain drill that i'm working on it's just kind of that light bulb i'm like wow that that, that's what i'm feeling there um is that kind of what you're focused on with athletes or is it with is there some athletes where you got to direct it a little bit more or you got to pull back a little bit more like like what's that actual coaching process look like when you say that 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 light bulb moment kind of comes on for them Right. So it's basically going over their mechanics and going over their video and basically telling them like what I'm seeing, right? Like here's, here's where we can be advantageous. Here's where we can kind of work. And then from there, when we start them on that, you know, the basic throwing program of like the new drills and the new philosophies and all that stuff, it's basically um, getting their feedback. I want to know what like they're feeling. Right. Like, is it did you feel your glove side on that one? Did you feel the ball basically flip up for a moment in time? Are you um, is the ball traveling basically straight forward or is it down? Right. Like when when guys first set up for that one knee throw, I'll set up the tee to understand like where their glove side line is and all that stuff. I'll set up the tee and I'll, I'll, I'll be like literally pull it down to that tee to understand where you need to throw the ball. Right. Um, And so from that standpoint, it's very simple with the feedback because they have a task at hand. If you don't give them a task and you're just like, here, do this and then try to feel this, there's no way for them to correlate like, okay, that was a good rep. That was a bad rep, but it's a, it's a very simple task. It's pull it down to that T try to hit the T and then try to stay inside your line. And then from there, if they're still not understanding it or feeling it, I'll walk them through video and be like, okay, here's what I'm seeing. Here's kind of, you know, where you need to be and where you need to go. And this is where you need to work instead. So it's, and then it's just getting feedback and it's a constant process of their feedback with my feedback and trying to get on the same page there as simply as possible. Right. Like that's the, that's the whole thing with, with 
coaching or whatever you want to call it. I hate being called coach, by the way. <laughs> I can't stand it. But um, but like that's the whole thing with that dynamic of of trainer player, whatever the case may be, is like there needs to be an open line of communication of is is the stuff that I'm seeing matching up with you, what you're feeling. Like that's that's coaching basically in a nutshell. Yeah, that, that that's freaking awesome. I, I don't let any of my athletes call me coach either, so that, that that's good to know. I just call everybody coach <laughs> on here to make sure they know the respect no, and they're, they're coming on. Um, so I, I really like that task at hand because that, that that was kind of what I was I was thinking about getting on is like how do you like you, you put them in these drills, but okay, like if there's really no goal to accomplish, like and like how are how are they making that connection? So I really love that task at hand piece. How are you applying that now to to some of the other maybe a little bit more wild throws where, where you are having them throw off the trampoline and you're having them throw in these other different positions? And what are the benefits you're seeing um, in there? I just remember that that was the first video I was sent to you. Um, I, I had just posted something about doing a box parkour or doing some parkour with some football athletes. And then they sent me um, this. is They're like, this is the you of baseball world. And you're jumping off the trampoline and throwing in different variations. Like, what, what are you seeing and what are you using that type of thing for when the in the adding that variation to their throws and and how are how are the athletes responding to that? I think it just becomes like it comes from a creativity standpoint. It was actually one of my athletes who suggested that he's like, hey, like, what if we took the tramp and put it in the middle of the turf and then we threw into the net? I was like, that's freaking awesome. <laughs> it was like an impromptu moment. It was not planned at all. Um, but again, like the principles are still the same, right? Like I'm still throwing the baseball down. My, I'm setting my glove side. I'm flipping the ball up. I'm making sure that I'm getting that turn of the body and I'm staying inside my lines and just pulling it down to the net. Like all the concepts are still the same. It's just now we're having different variations around it to basically get them to understand, you know, the feelings and sensations that I'm trying to get them to feel. Um, so all the principles are, are essentially the same. It's just, mixing and matching and getting them into different, I guess, environments or different positions to basically get them to understand. Because a lot of guys um, take, it, it takes them more than a few different stimuluses to actually get them to start to understand what they're, you know, what I'm trying to get them to have them to do. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, I'm reading um, Rob Gray's second book, like how learning to optimize movement. And one of the things that he talks about is like in skill acquisition, like our goal is not to just perfect a skill or get the skill perfect. It's to like what you're saying, keep the principles of the skill the same in as many different variety or um, as many different environments as we can possibly get them. So keep the principles the same and challenge the environment around those principles. And you know the skill works when the principles are staying the same through the variety of environments. And your job as a coach needs to be challenged and change that environment because it's going to be challenged and changed in their sport. Um, so if you really want to see if you if what you're doing is working, if your principles are staying, you got to challenge that. Otherwise, it's just going to be exposed when they step onto the mound in the game. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's fast and slow movements. It's in it's in different um you know, environments or different drills or whatever, what, what have you. Um, but it's basically getting them to understand their bodies. Like they've basically never understood before. So moving faster, moving slower up the hill, down the hill, like all the principles are still staying the same, but it's just changing maybe a, a tweak here, a tweak there, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and I, that kind of reminds me of uh, Dan Fitcher talks about, 
we had him on the podcast and he was saying like if you, if you master the extremes a lot of the middle becomes open and one, one thing right. that kind of got my brain rolling too with is is like if you expose your body to the extremes a lot of like the middle ground becomes like like it's almost like a light bulb moment to like a lot of the middle stuff and the stuff in between if and when i found this implementing a lot of like gymnastics type movements and just a lot of movement into our training especially with our big athletes our, our, our football type athletes that have never been exposed to it and a lot of the the light bulb moments of movement variability that they're able to find through the extremes, you expose them to something extreme. And then that creative process of, okay, my body's able to do this. And it kind of just naturally finds that middle ground. And you're probably going to spend a little bit more time in, let's say that, that, that middle ground of movement in the sport. And, and you're, you're, you're not going to be able to, if we're just saying in the football world, like open up uh, totally and sprints as fast as possible in the baseball world, maybe you're not just totally able to hit a ball like you would off a tee as fast as possible. But if you're able to expose yourself to that extreme, then the middle ground kind of found, finds and exposes itself and comes to light a lot more naturally than if you spend that time randomly trying to focus on a specific middle ground movement. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so it's like, it's like, can we go through our motion extremely, extremely slow and feel everything? And then are there also times where I can put like a, a band on your glove side and basically get you to snap those hips and rotate as fast as you can. Right. Like, and then, like you said, the middle ground just kind of takes, takes care of itself because all the principles are still the same. It's just now your body now understands, okay, I can, I can do that when I need to snap my hips when I do a regular throw. Right. So it's, it's that same, it's the same principle. It's the same concept for everything. And then they should all align when you get in that mindset of like, okay, it's bullpen time. I need to throw as fast as I possibly can. I've been through it in slow motion. I've been through it in the one knee throw. I've been through it in, you know, basically every throw variation that we've ever gone through. And now it's just a matter of, okay. Um, how well can I do that today? How well can I maintain that task that we've been working on basically all week? Well, that, that's something that I think is super powerful too, is like physiologically it makes sense and making those, those drills and the, the skills stick in their brains. But psychologically, it's almost, all, it, I've found it to be so freeing for athletes for when, when you're able to expose them to these, to these different environments, these different, like you said, they're able to throw off a knee. They know they principle wise, they can keep it off a knee. They can maybe if they can keep their principles jumping off a trampoline, you know, it, it psychologically frees them to just kind of go out and do the principles rather than, Oh my God, I've only done the principles in this certain set in this certain way. And now they're kind of stuck in, okay, if, if something is different, if the weather is different, if hey, there's somebody's in a crowd and now, now their brain's kind of stuck and trapped in the, everything needs to be perfect model, which I see a lot of coaches kind of trap their athletes in, uh, cause they never expose them to something where my goal kind of is to psychologically free the athletes. Like, dude, you did this in 400 different ways and we kept our principles the same. And now you just step on the mound. And honestly, like when you step on the mound, it should be easier in that sense. You know, like you, you've done it in all these different ways. If you can keep right. your principles the same and throw that hard jumping off a trampoline with everybody watching you, like you can do this on the mound in, in front of, in front of what you've done since you've probably been eight years old. Right. Yeah. And one of, <clears throat> one of my principles is positioning. So um, I'm a big believer in positioning. So if we, if we already understand where our body is in space at all times, right, we've, we've done, we've done the ISO holds, we've done the weird jumps. Um, we basically understood that my chin has to stay over my back hip so I can maintain length through the hip flexor throughout the entire throw. Like you've done all that isolation standpoint, right? 
some guys are are still so focused on what does my positioning look like when they actually get in their throw that they'll make it really super choppy. It'll just be like, okay, I have to go, I have to bring the weight up and then I have to bring it down and then I'm going to stop and then I'm going to make sure that like the ball gets up and then I have to follow through. And it's like, it's not like that. You it, like you're gonna hit those checkpoints along the way, but you gotta smooth those out. They have to smoothly transition. It's not just up, down, boom, boom. It's like it all flows together. And so when I'm initially starting, there's some guys that get really positional. They'll be like, "Okay, I have to do this. I have to hit this. It has to feel like this." And it's like, no, it it you should hit that checkpoint, but you should flow right on to the next one. Otherwise you're not going to be able to throw as hard as you want to throw. You almost have to take off those breaks in a sense. Like sometimes I'll, I'll yell at guys in the backyard when they're going for that PR number or whatever the case may be. I'll just be like, you got to take the brakes off right now. I'll say it in a different way and with a different tone, but <laughs> the, the point remains the same is like, you got to take them off. We've already done all the work. We've already put you in all the positions that you need to be put in. Your body understands exactly what it needs to do. Now you're the one getting in the way of all the work that you put in. So take the brakes off. Somehow you got to inhibit yourself to turn all that off and all that processing off. This, this is not the time to process as much information as possible. This is the time to like get really like, um, instinctual, I guess. I don't know. Um, but just like take the brakes off and just have fun with it, like flow through it and just let it rip. Like that's what the environment's for. Like just let that take you over and you're going to be just fine. Yeah, dude, that's so fucking awesome. And the, the eight brain, we talk about it all the time. And that, that, I, that, that's I, I relate pitching um, a lot to sprinting in my world, my American football world, a little bit more team sport background world. Uh, and it's obviously baseball guys work with, too. But because um, I, I see every time I hear a pitching guy talk about it, I'm like, bro, that is sprinting to a T for like American football. It's like, uh, it, okay, you talk about the importance of like trying to like maybe it's a long lunge iso position. We're trying to get in this long lunge position and you're trying to feel this be a little bit more expansive base um, talking about like the the arch of the foot we're talking about all these things all these these principles and positions that we want to do but when it comes time to sprint you got to sprint like and this is where so many coaches get stuck into all we're going to teach our athletes is high knees like a skips arms here elbows here and like you freeze these athletes and they never once tell the athlete like it's it's not just about positions like that because the coach can control positions it's really easy for you and i to control positions and work on positions what it's really hard for is to expose them to the position and then have them understand okay now you got to stop focusing on that and we got to get you into this environment and that, that that's something that i find and why i why i was asking so much honestly about that technical model is is how you balance that because i i really do believe it's it's expose them to the positions have them understand they're able to get there but then also a big big piece of it especially with athletes nowadays is because there's so much information it's like this massive information overload for a lot of these athletes is they have all these information they have all these things and they're so stuck in this like type two slow brainwave that they're in that they can never access that type one instinctual ape brain that just allows them to go and it's like you, you see a lot of the great athletes and they'll do they'll do do they'll do things wrong. They'll do things wrong. They'll get in the wrong positions. They'll do a lot of things wrong. But there's so much in the type one that they're just able to do it instinctually that they're going to outrun the dude that's doing everything perfect. And we, we see it a lot in sprinting. It's like we, we have a guy at our gym that consistent like he has he struggles super hard because he comes from a massive track background where it was all it was all position based. So he runs like, um, is it Jason Bourne from uh, Mission Impossible? <laughs> but it's yeah, like elbows, yeah, like yeah. everything is just so perfect and so pretty. And like 
if you're yeah. to look, show him to a, like a sprinting coach, like, oh, yes, that is just a shadow of the position that he's hitting. But if you were to show him the time compared to somebody like you just have this mat, we have this like 240 pound dude that was a state champ in the hurdles at 240 pounds and just a freak athlete. But you'd look at his form in a shadow and you'd be like, the sprint coach would be like, no, that guy's no way that guy's fast, but his time's way faster. So I think balancing those two and then having that yin and yang approach to training is so important for the athletes to really get them to where they want to go. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you ever heard of a um, a dude by the name of David Weck by chance? Yep. So I I don't know. He's really controversial as far as like you know his implementation of everything. But the thing that I like about him is that um, he does get that kind of flow to it that you're kind of talking about. Like he's like, yes, you need to understand the nine to eleven group connection that the whole entire. Um, focal point of rotation is from that nine to 11 thrib, that deep lat attachment. However, you need to be able to flow into head over foot when you are sprinting or when you are doing athletic activity, right? Like I like the fact that he's doing the rope flow and getting you to understand the timing of that when you actually hit um, with that stride foot. I, I don't know. I'm not a sprinting guy. Like I, I know a little bit about sprinting. It's not my forte. However, um, that's one of the things that I kind of have started to implement as far as like getting guys to understand, yes, positionally we need to get there. However, it needs to kind of flow into that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And now we, so we've talked about the, the, the pitching side of it. Um, but one of the things that I absolutely love in your training is the, the arm care revolution and really how you train the athlete. And one of the best things about you is like, you, you have both aspects Like you're, you're not just spacing out these athletes and then like just pitching or just trying like you, you combine it into that massive, like everything's combined and you're, you're training these athletes like the human in front of you. Like you're training these athletes, like athletes in front of you, which is something that I think is missed a lot in the baseball world. We talked before, it's like that three by 10 YWT approach to like the, the arm care. And then you have these dudes going out there and slinging the ball a hundred miles an hour. And you, you have coaches saying like, they, they can't throw a, the football, you know, or they can't do something different, but they'll give them like this five ounce ball and have them whipping a hundred miles an hour. Cause one's dangerous and one's not. And it's just kind of that massive yeah. disconnect, but you are training these athletes, like, like athletes, like, like human athletes and these massive stimuluses. You're, you're, you're doing a ton of rotations. You're doing a ton of drop catches and rebound type training, a ton of positional isometrics and reflexive, reflexive isometrics. You have a ton of work on the, the super cat. What is kind of your approach to training an athlete and how are you implementing all these things? And, and what are the principles principles behind your training? Right. <clears throat> so um, the principles themselves, um, I have mechanics, positioning, recruitment and timing. OK, so I, I kind of touched on positioning a little bit earlier, but like that's where the isometrics come into play, like and the slow movements, the eccentrics, that kind of stuff. Like we need tissue preparation when we're getting these athletes to try to basically throw as hard as they can. And one of the things that is, you know, sorely missing in the baseball industry is we have Tommy John rehab programs where guys are throwing out to 120 feet, which is supposed to mirror the stress that is encapsulated when you go to the mound, right? It's supposed to be the same stress level. However, these same guys are not able to basically do chin-ups before they get there. Like there's a huge disconnect in as far as like stress tissue preparation between 120 feet hitting the benchmark and making sure that we're ready for the stress, but yet we can't do it in the weight room. That's ludicrous. Like that makes zero sense to me. Like we're just asking for second Tommy Johns as guys, 
start to throw harder and harder with more and more stress on the arm. Um, so that's a little side rant for you, but, um, but yeah. And then, um, recruitment. Okay. So recruitment for me, I work really, really well with guys that have kind of already laid that strength foundation. Like they've done the industry standard. They've done the bench press. They've done the squat. They've done the reverse lunge. And essentially what I'm able to do is I'm able to take that strength base that they've already built up over time with years of training. It's kind of similar to what I did and basically get them to be able to use that not only on a physical level, but also on a neurological level of being able to basically turn on that signal a little bit faster. It's kind of like that mind muscle connection. Right. And then from there, the only thing that we really need is a timing rhythm and tempo pertinent to their throw so that we can access what they've already physically trained over the years. And that's where we were talking about earlier, where um, the different drills, the different positions, different environments um, get them to kind of, kind of sync that up. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and your, your connection between all, all of these things is really what I feel like is where that magic kind of lies. It's not just focus on the strength and not just focus on something else. And, and the other thing that I wanted to mention too, is like you, you talked about how they're, they're working up to 120 feet with their throws and the, like not the, like the disconnect, the, the, that paradox you have. And I think that's so important in the strength world and the rehab world is like, we see these paradoxes all the time. Like, we are saying one thing, but you go and look at it and it's totally just like a paradox. Like that's that athlete's not doing that. Um, it doesn't make sense. The stress levels are here, but we're not working them there. Like it right. really that paradox approach of like, why are we not looking at what we're saying? And what the low hanging fruit there that it's like, okay, you're, you're having them work up to 120 feet, but they can't do a chin up in the weight room. And it's like, there's probably so much low hanging fruit for just soft tissue development in some weight, simple weight room activities that you're doing. And then you can also progress those to a different level of becoming to train like a savage, you know, like, you know, like working on some of those quasi isometrics that you're having. And that, that's something that I think is super cool, but it's like, we're totally missing that, that low hanging fruit for the athletes. And that's where I feel like you, you talked about, you work with athletes that have a really, when they have a really good strength base, it, it usually leads to really great results. And I feel like that is a lot of it is because these blocks are in place, but they have missed a lot of that low hanging fruit in some of the things in the, in the isometrics, in the super cat, in the, in a lot of the side bending stuff that you're doing too. I've noticed that a ton with our, a lot of the higher level athletes that we work with is they come in so compressed and so good at that, that basic level of strength um, that they're, they totally missed out on the low hanging fruit of just getting their rib cage to move, their, their, their spine to move. And that that's where we really see a lot of great results is just looking at the athlete in front of us and looking at where the low hanging fruit is, and then just working on that low hanging fruit. And every time it's like, oh man, that was magic. Oh, that was magic. It's like, no, you just totally missed a piece of the development and right. just kept like you, like you said, like kept trying to push that hex bar deadlift from 580 to 600 when maybe all we needed just was the crawl or move, move the spine a little bit more or do maybe a plyo pushup or something like that. Right. Right. Absolutely. <clears throat> and that, that comes from a place of like me banging my head against the wall for years. Like mm -hmm. I was, I was just like, you know, there, there's a reason why it's called train like a savage, because like, I, I come from that mindset of like, I'm just dedicated to the work, to the work itself. And I didn't know any other way to work. And so it was just like, okay, if it's not working, I must just have to do more. And that's not always the answer. It's there's like, there's other ways around that. And I felt as though if I strayed away from that, if like, I didn't give it my all and I wasn't trying to basically lift 600 pounds or, you know, bench press a certain number or whatever the case may be. Like I wasn't getting ahead of my training and looking back, it's like, dude, I was doing 120 pound dumbbell bench 
on both sides for reps. Like when we were doing testing, it was the largest dumbbell in the, in, in the entire weight room. And it was like, well, I, I guess I just do more, more volume is always the answer. And that's, that wasn't the answer. It was like, there is so much more that we could be doing. There's so much more from a rate of force development standpoint. There's so much more from a motor recruitment standpoint. Like we need to send signals faster, especially once you've built up that uh, really, really good strength base. Like we need to basically move quicker now. <laughs> I was, I was like that, that big, like, blocky guy that was really really strong but like didn't move fast enough and basically i was so strong and so ready to throw the ball that i was i I almost um you know didn't prepare myself enough to be able to withstand that stress of throwing and i still had bad mechanics on top of that so that's why i kept running into elbow issues because i was just pulling off and i was just super strong and i just dragged my arm along yeah, and, and I talk about them. I, that's so relatable because I talk about surviving my own stupidity in my own training too. It's it's like, man, if you had just like just taken a step back because I was the same mindset. It was like, okay, like I Olympic lifted this. Oh my god, I just got Olympic lift more, uh, and nope. then I, I got like reached the pinnacle of Olympic lifts. And this is the funny part: like I would le- reach the pinnacle of Olympic lifts. I remember cleaning like three fifty as a freshman in college, and I was like, okay, and I would get I got laid out at practice that day. I was like, okay, so I reached the pinnacle Olympic lifts. It wasn't the answer. So now I just got to go conjugate. And that was my answer. So, and it's just, I still was in this stupid mindset of like, okay, I maxed out one, but what I'm missing is maxing out something else rather than just like, okay, dude, like what, what is your low hanging fruit? It's probably not anywhere in the weight room that you're looking at, you know, like maybe go jump, maybe go sprint, maybe go do something like, because I honestly believe like even at that state for a lot of athletes, like if they just jump sprint and move like an athlete more, they, they're going to see massive gains. And then you start to add in even just some, some of the, the, the rebound type movement, some of the stuff that actually requires you to move fast and, and fire fast. And that's really where you, you see some of the magic with these athletes, but like, it's not, it's like, they don't even have to go full wooey with us. They don't even have to go full isometric, full drop, catch, full rebound with us. Like a lot of it's just like, Go, go, go move like an athlete, like get out of that box and, and just go move like an athlete. And then once you move like an athlete and you kind of peak now there, then we'll bring you into this rate of force development and some of the stuff that we're turning on. And ideally we do that concurrently. Like if you just come and train with one of us, like we'll do it concurrently with you and we'll, we'll kind of progress those things together. But I just feel like a lot of athletes are stuck in, in that banging their head against the wall. And it's like, you got four years to do this. You, you got one shot to do this and you really can't slow down to ever take a step back. And that's where I really feel like us as coaches need to be able to do that. Like us as coaches need to be able to take like, all right, dude, like you've peaked here. Like I got to have that conversation with you. You've peaked here. Let's work and start to develop some of these other aspects of training. And you're going to see like, when you go from shit to suck in that aspect of your, like of your life, you're going to see such massive gains in all the other aspects of it. Yeah. And I think part of our, um, our duty or, or I don't know, like our, our job is basically to provide that outsider perspective. Cause a lot of these dudes have blinders on, right? Like I, I know I did. I was so freaking stubborn. Like no one was going to tell me anything in college. I was like, Nope, I'm going to long toss. I'm going to lift this heavy. I'm going to do this. And no one gave me that outsider's perspective, or at least I wasn't listening um, to be able to kind of take those blinders off and be like, no dude, like it's, it's mechanical. Like your mechanics suck. They're absolutely <laughs> terrible. Like that's why you keep running into elbow issues. Right. Um, 
So it, it, you know, that's, that's what we're calling is, is to provide that outside perspective because of our experience, because we've been there so many times. And that gets back to kind of that textbook thing that you were talking about. Like, yeah, you can read about all this stuff. Yeah. You can read about like the implementation, you can read about the science, but it's like, can you have a person who has personal experience with the exact spot that you're at, meet the athlete where they're at and be able to give them and provide them a, you know, not a quick and easy solution, but at least a solution that, you know, gets them to keep working towards something to progress towards. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I was, I mean, I was in the same boat too. It's, it's like, mm-hmm. Hey dude, instead of go lift, like maybe go work on a pass rush move, you know, like, you know, and ours wasn't, mine wasn't even injuries. It was just like, you have like the, if a guy, you, all you do is just have strength people, like maybe go work on a pass rush move and you're going to develop so much quicker in, in your, your area of expertise. So I totally relate to that. Now we're looking at your, your training page and, and we're seeing a ton of these drop catches. We're seeing some of these rebounds and we're seeing some of these movements that people would be like, oh, wow, that's new. That, that That's that's um, out there. How do you like how did you get into the world of rebounds, reflexive isometrics, some of the quasi isometrics that, that, that you're implementing? How did you initially get implemented into that in the into that world of these these isometrics, the, these these rate of force development movements, the, these um, letting gravity do a lot of the work that that we want to do. Like, how did how did you get into that thought process and looking at the world of training that way? Especially coming from uh, a little bit of that Cressy background, where it seems just a little bit more traditional. Where we're going to hex bar deadlift, we're going to work on the big three, we're going to um, like we're going to rotate and throw a med ball against the wall. Um, like, how how did you take a step out and maybe leave the box yourself to come in and look at these things that not a lot of people are doing, and maybe a lot more people should be doing, or at least seeing training in the in the light that you're seeing training in. Right. Yeah, no, um, definitely a heavy influence. I'm not going to hide from it is the pitching doc. Like, you know, when we, when I was part of that program and kind of helped out with that program and whatnot. Um, and then from there, it was like taking that and researching it myself and like, how does this all apply? Right. So then I started going down like rabbit holes of, okay, um, how do I, listen to Jay Schroeder as, as best I can. Like he's very tight and confined with his information and all that. So it's like, okay, how do I get access to some of that? And then it was like, okay, um, Dietrich, uh, I always mess up his name, uh, DB hammer. Okay. You, you know who DB hammer is. Um, but then I started reading a bunch of his stuff, um, and started finding, you know, basically his old stuff. You can't find his website. It's banned. Like I've looked so many times and then you can't find his book. I'm still trying to find his book. Um, it's called the best training manual ever or something like that. Um, and then, uh, I started reading Kelly Baggett. I don't know if you've ever heard of Kelly Baggett, but he has a bunch of, um, articles, you know, from this old ass website. I can't even remember the name of it, but then I just started to, you know, research as much of that as I could. I also started reading like super training. Um, and again, these, these books and these articles and all this stuff isn't the end all be all, but it definitely gave like, it gave me a different perspective as far as how are these NFL athletes running four eights at 300 and something odd pounds like that from a physiological standpoint and from an energy output standpoint, like that is insane. Like that is stupid to be able to basically move that fast. Like there are a lot of 220 pound, you know, D three football players that can't run four eights that are supposed to be running backs. And these dudes in the NFL are doing it at 300 plus pounds. So how are they able to do that? There's gotta be some sort of disconnect between the strength 
and then also rate of force development, being able to send those signals. Um, yes, there's there's gene expression a little bit in there, but gene expression, what we're finding out is not nearly as important as we once thought. So that's not really an excuse anymore. Um, and then also, how young are these kids starting, right? Like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with PJF Performance. He's kind of big on Instagram or whatever, um, but I listened to a lot of his podcasts as well. And um, he basically said that like quickness, meaning like how fast you can move your leg from point A to point B, that can only be developed um, up until the age of 12. And once you, once you basically get to the age of 12, that um, neuroplasticity in your brain basically goes away. Like you're not able to develop that anymore. So you have to work on other qualities, right? Maybe it's being able to basically send the signal faster. Maybe it's neurological recruitment. Maybe it's, you know, um, strength development, whatever the case may be, but quickness itself can't be developed past the age of 12. That's, that's essentially what he said. So, um, you know, all those, all those places kind of put me down a rabbit hole and that's kind of where I started drawing from. But those are my, those are my main people as far as like where I'm looking at and where I'm kind of researching. I know it's kind of like off kilter. I know it's kind of unconventional, but this stuff has been around for like 20, 25 years. This is not new stuff, at least in the States. And then if you go to Russia, they've been doing this stuff for 35, 40, 50 years. That's why they were kicking our ass in the 1960s and all these weightlifting competitions. Well, yeah, I, I love that point, too, because you talk about like you have a coach who look at the, some of the drop catches and I've seen it, too. It's like these traditional coaches. It's like they'll say, well, that's just like it's just the next way. It's just a new wave. It's a new fad. It's like what it's like bro, the, you you preach reading super training. There's no way you actually read that book because it's like I show you the chapter like we talk about right. this stuff, you know, like upper body climate, you know, like what, what are you talking about, man? Like this is in the book that you swear, like you take your conventional like in the box knowledge like this stuff has been there for a long, long time, like you mentioned. Um, so now, now you, you, you went down those rabbit holes and I, I really liked what you talked about. Like you went down all these rabbit holes and you're looking at all these things and I'm the same way. Like, oh, I get obsessed about something. I'm going to go explore all these things. And you started implementing them. And this is a big question I've been getting. It's like, okay, like, okay, what do you feel? Like, how is implementing these things? What happens? Like when you started, you started going down this rabbit hole, how did you go about implementing and grabbing the knowledge from them? And then what did you notice? Like, when did you realize like, okay, I went down this rabbit hole. I read this stuff. And now I'm actually going to keep it because they, they, holy crap, like this is working. I feel this. Like, what was that process like for you? I just started to notice, like, I was able to do things that I had no business doing. Right. And it was, it was fast too. It wasn't like, it wasn't like it took me three, four or five months. Cause everybody in the training world, like, yeah, you want to be patient, but at the same time, you also want to push the envelope. Like, obviously you want to have that balance, but, um, it was fast. Like I was able to do things and get hip length and basically jump and move like, like something I had never been able to do before. And <clears throat> so I was like, I know it's working and I'm able to, to throw harder. Now my elbow gave out again, but like that's neither here nor there. But, um, but I was, I was able to basically move in, in a way that I'd, I'd never been able to do. And it was fast. It was within like three months. And so I knew I was on to something as far as how it worked. And then from there, it's like re a refining process of, okay, am I overstimulating them? Am I using too much of this stuff too fast where they could possibly border on the line of injury? right? Like that's where the experimentation process has kind of taken place. And I'd say over the last like three, four months, I've gotten really, really good at taking that information, implementing it, and also making it, you know, 
safe and tolerable for guys that have basically never done that before. Cause what I, what I've done in the past was I was like, well, I take this new information. It's awesome. Let's overload them and basically do it like no one else has done before. And that can, you know, lead to injury. I can injure myself doing that. And so it's been kind of a process of like, cause you read, you've read super training and you read some of that stuff. Like they have an insane amount of volume for an insanely heavy um, cycle. Like it is stupid. Like the stuff that I'm doing pales in comparison to the volume and implementation that they're doing. Right. Um, so it's like, how do you, how do you take that <clears throat> and take a 180 pound scrawny six, four college kid who's trying to go from 90, 91 to 95 and basically get him to do this Russian protocol that you just read about last night how do you take that and make sure that he can actually do that? Right. That's where the balance is. Like we're not going to have him do three rounds of, of all these exercises. We're going to, you know, um, take those principles and basically slowly implement them where he can withstand the stress and then basically build upon that. Yeah. That, that, that's awesome. So we, we have, we have a coach that's, that's wanting to get into wanting to get into these kind of rabbit holes and they're listening to this podcast. What are some things that you, you want to point them to, to be like, you should, you should try this. You should implement this. And it's kind of maybe some of your, your basics, some of your, your core things that you were like, okay, these are for sure keepers that coaches listening that want to get into this should try in themselves and be like, you're going to, you're going to see results with some of these things. Yeah. So I would start with, uh, <clears throat> implementing, um, some contrast training, um, you know, obviously start with some ISOs. And then from there, you want to basically take that isometric, whatever that is, whether, whether that's a one leg wall sit, whether that's a lunge ISO hold, whether that's a push up ISO hold, dip ISO hold, whatever the case may be. And then you can basically take that ISO and then contrast that on top of it. It's a super simple way to start. Um, and then you can basically build upon the volume over time, but that's a super simple way of doing it. So take a one leg wall sit and then basically jump up and try to catch yourself in that same one leg wall sit position. And then you can do the same thing with like a lunge, like a lunge ISO you'd be down, down there. And then you could jump up and basically go into, you know, Russian lunges. Um, you could do the same thing with a push up. You could hold it down there and then you could do a ballistic ISO push up. Like it's, it, that's a really simple way to get your body to understand and respond really, really fast. You just have to be careful with the volume implementation because if you do too much volume too fast, you're going to be way too sore and not be able to recover and not get a, the amount of uh, volume that you need over, you know, a micro cycle or whatever you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And I really liked your post on that. And that's not something I've seen uh, a ton of coaches implement. It's either like they're either doing the the rebounds and the, the ballistics or they're doing the ISOs. Um, and you had a really cool post about why you implement isometrics contrasted with these with these ballistic type movements. Can you kind of explain why you go about that for the coaches that are listening? Like, OK, that sounds interesting, but I haven't heard of that. What, why, why are you implementing that? Because um, there's there's two different spectrums there's the neuro rate of force development and then there's the neuro duration and if you do basically both of those you're going to get an overlap in neurological processing so essentially what you're able to do is you're able to increase that neurological processing by about like 15 percent. and so by you being able to basically hold that end range 
for whatever it is, 20 seconds, whatever arbitrary time you want to put it. And then you put on top of that, basically that reflexive isometric or whatever the case may be. Um, you're just able to basically recruit more motor units because um, you've done it in iso duration. Um, and then you, you're going to do it in more, you know, type two dominant type of movement. So you get kind of an overlap from not only a neurological standpoint, but also a physiological standpoint as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Are you implementing now what like, so we, we, we see all the kind of, let's say, let's say it's the cool stuff, all, all the, the, the low hanging fruit stuff that we're doing on in our training. Are we also implementing more traditional models in our training? Cause I, I know I also like y'all hear that too. Is like, we're doing a lot of, uh, a lot of out there stuff, but it's like a lot of, I, a lot of times I just don't record a lot of traditional stuff that we're doing if we are doing it, but like, are you doing any of the traditional, like kind of lifting methods? Like what, what does, what does a day kind of look like? I guess, is, is it all these, is it full Dr. Tommy John, um, full, basically isometric rebound type movement? Is it, um, more so traditional we're sprinkling in these isometrics and reflexive type movements or is it is it is there a middle ground like what what does kind of a day of training look like with you right i mean at this point it's like what is traditional <laughs> like um in the grand scheme of things like at this point i i don't know I, i'm probably too far down the rabbit hole to understand what traditional is at this point but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know like i'm always playing around with stuff and i'm always just like thinking about like okay like how does this relate to the throw or like how does this get you to rotate faster or whatever the case may be so i don't i don't know what traditional is anymore but um yeah no a a, a general day is uh going to be um some tissue work basically our tissue work is going to be some of those isometrics um some of that lengthening process obviously like you can't actually lengthen your tissue but from a neurological standpoint your body can understand like okay like that's being stretched out like i can understand where i need to be lengthwise like the tissue itself isn't actually doing the lengthening it's your brain's capacity to be able to interpret your body basically moving um but, uh, but yeah, so it, it starts with, uh, with some lengthening, um, it starts with some dynamic movement. And then we basically go to either the throwing drills that day or, you know, pre-throwing drills. Um, and then if it's bullpen day, we'll go back to the mound and, uh, each guy will basically get their turn and we'll walk them through like, okay, here's what your pre-throw drills are before that day. Um, and then we'll get you on the mound. <clears throat> And then we have kind of your, your plan mapped out or at least you should in your head as far as like, what is your, what is your plan A for that day? Like, do you have a PR in mind? Do you have a Q in mind? Whatever the case may be. And if it's not going well, how do we transition on into plan B? So your plan B is like, okay, um, we're going to have to have a professional pen today because what you're doing is not working. And so we kind of have to make a mental switch really, really fast to be able to still get something out of that mound session. So, um, and then after that mound session, what we roll into is, is we roll into whatever you want to call it, the, the lift or the jumps or, or, or whatever, what have you. Um, but uh, <clears throat> as far as, you know, regular implementation, I wouldn't say that our stuff looks anything like traditional <laughs> whatsoever. Um, there's a lot of one leg stability based on, you know, the research based on my anecdotal experience, um, being able to stabilize baseball is going to be more of a hinge dominant sport than a squat dominant sport. 
um, which may be a little bit controversial, but being able to load the hinge is going to be vastly more important um, than actually being able to, to squat the house. So um, there's a lot of uh, one leg hops. There's a lot of uh, deadlifting on one leg. There's a lot of um, using the super cat to basically jump on one leg. There's a lot of um, one leg wall sits. There's a lot of, um, you know, jumps from the lunge ISO position. There's a lot of recruitment from the lunge ISO position. Um, bench press is probably the most traditional, I guess. Um, whether that's going down slow, we don't have access to a ton of weight. So it's not like you can go up to like 315 or anything. Um, so maybe you're going through it slow. Maybe you're getting a partner to kind of push you down and hold you down so that you can recruit the way that you need to. Um, but that's basically going to be a traditional day. Like it's warm up, throwing drills, and then lift. That's essentially how it rolls. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that, that rant about like what is traditional anymore. Cause I feel like that's where we should kind of get to too. It's like, it's not, uh, it's not traditional or non-traditional. It's like what, it, what's working, what's not. Uh, and right. when you, when you're working with these athletes, one of the things that you talked about mm-hmm. is like working on the rotating faster. And that is something that I noticed in your training too. You're doing some sledgehammer rotations. I'm sure you're doing a bunch of other stuff there. You're doing a lot of med ball throws there. Uh, and that, that's something that I noticed huge one, one just bending and moving the rib cage for athletes is huge, like unlock, unlocking it, but then also it's almost like bending and moving the rib cage in more of an output type way rather than, so I kind of view it in two ways. Like we're going to bend and move the rib cage and spine in a way that it's more movement options and movement variability. Maybe we're going to do an ISO there. Maybe it's just a little bit longer hold. Um, and we're really trying to open up some of that side bending position, some of that lateral line. Um, but then we're also going to do it in more of an output way where we're taking PV. I talk, call them daddy hacks, but we'll take a PVC pipe. We'll take a massive daddy hack and work that rotation aspect. Um, we'll do some things like the um, we'll take a plate and we'll rotate as fast as human, like as fast as possible for five seconds. But what are some of those things that you're implementing? And why are you implementing some of the, these rotational aspects aspects that I feel like is kind of missed in a lot of programs? And if it's not missed, the only way it's really touched on is we're going to do like six med ball throws that are kind of half-assed throughout the week. Right. That's going to be a really, there's a really fine line and delicate balance of rotational training because we are already rotating when we are throwing, when we are swinging, whatever the case may be. So you have to be really, really careful with how much volume that you're implementing. Um, That might be one of my first mistakes, honestly, is putting too much emphasis on volume in rotational training. That's something that I've learned. Um, you know, based on my experience, but, uh, yeah. So rotational training, we have to understand a few things. Like the reason the side bending is in there and the reason why the lateral line is so important is so that we can actually be able to have that anterior hip basically fold over and be able to be used. Right. Like if my lateral line on my, um, vastus lateralis, it band, whatever have you, and going up into that thoracolumbar fascia, as well as kind of that deep lat attachment all the way up through the lat and the tricep, if that isn't functioning, I'm not going to be able to basically fold my hip over in rotation itself. That's why we need length through there. And so that's why that is vitally important to be able to basically train for rotation. So we need that lengthen and it also needs to be able to be strong um, to be basically be able to use that hip the way that we need. Um, <clears throat> and then as far as, uh, as far as volume implementation and, and rotational training, um, I really like, um, I really like the 90, 90 position. 
Um, and it's, it's kind of different in, in my uh, interpretation of it, but I essentially started to load it up with a bar. And um, from that point, now I can understand that um, I can basically press to the ground with my adductor and I can basically get that deep lat attachment activation as well. And then I can use that to rotate itself. Now, if you have a guy that hasn't done that very often, I would, would not suggest basically starting to rip as fast as you can. What I would start with is some slow activation where you go back to the end range, you activate so that you can understand where your body needs to be. And then you go to the, the brace point. So I'm going to stop here as opposed to rotating all the way through. That's basically our glove side being able to basically brace against that front side. So that right there, and then that right there. So that's going to be vitally important in the rotational aspect of training. And then usually like I always, for the most part do, um, is contrast that as well. So, um, our med ball throws, I'll start with some heavier imp implementation because a heavier implemented object is going to be usually easier for your uh, athletes to kinesthetically feel what they need to feel as far as their hips folding over in the right spot that we kind of talk about. And then we go down in weight. So they're, they're understanding how the movement's supposed to kind of go from there. And then we go to more neurological recruitment where we go like, you know, four pounds, two pounds, soccer ball, whatever the case may be. They already understand what their movement is supposed to feel like. And now we're just trying to get them to kind of move quicker. So we contrast that with kind of the, the 9090 and it's been, it's been working pretty well as far as um, our guys kind of being able to not only throw the med balls harder, um, but, you know, be able to swing a little bit easier um, and also, you know, throw a little bit harder too. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty sweet. I haven't experimented with the ninety ninety position all yet, so I'll have to start implementing that. But I play a lot of slow pitch softball, and and implementing a lot of the 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 spinal rotations and implementing a lot of the the rotational aspects in my training past just med ball throws. Um, I mean, it, it increased my exit velo without training any of the other tra uh, changing any of the other training to by like ten miles an hour. Like it was pretty wild. Yep, yep. crazy. Yeah. And, and the, and the way I also feel like, and if, if you're not a baseball athlete, like, and I talk about this, but it's just like moving your spine in those positions and getting that spine to, I talk about unlocking the spine, like you're going to walk around just so much more fluid. Like we talk all the time. It's like, your spine has so many joints and it's like, if you just cast it up your hand the whole time and, and brace your hand the whole time, like your hand's probably not going to move. It's probably going to feel like crap. And it's not going to move like a hand should. And yet we do the same thing kind of with that spine. And once, once you really start to move that spine and unlock what that spine's able to do and what it should do. Um, I, I've noticed personally myself and just athletes, just like their gait and the way that they will walk. It, it's like almost yeah. like this slithery snake, like kind of shoulder side to side, almost like that McGregor walk rather than that, like, american like like this trap all the way yeah. up to your ear and you're unable to rotate with that spine and that that's a big thing i watch with a lot of athletes like how are they walking when they're moving in uh and when when they come in like to the training session like how are they walking how locked up are they and what happens when we start to implement some of these things and it, it's really cool to see just how like that it's almost like that swagger walk kind of comes back to them and like how that's being implemented in their training. They're a lot more reflexive and a lot more just relaxed when they're moving and they have so many more moving options available to them. Yeah, no, I, it's so funny you say that. Cause I, I was telling an athlete the other day, I was like, have you ever seen like NBA superstars, like walk into a game? Like 
they are not like straight up and down. Like they're moving side to side and they're using that rotational aspect of that movement because they're so athletic. Like they're able to actually like use that rotation and just kind of like walk, like they have some swagger and actually can move that tissue. Yeah. Oh, uh, but that, that, that is, it's, it's like that, like, the reason it's a swagger walk is because good athletes do it. You know, it's like we, we have that just kind of, it's like, okay, again, that to me, that's almost like, and it's a silly one, but it is a, it's a paradox. It's like you're watching these athletes walk in like that and maybe there's like that rotational aspect to it. And then we go and train a different way. It's like, okay, they're probably not just doing that. Maybe, maybe like to McGregor, if you're going full McGregor, yeah, you're probably just doing that for the psychological. Like you literally yeah. don't think your shit stinks, which is also a part of being an elite athlete too. So you also absolutely. But the other aspect is they naturally, like you said, like I watching NFL at like in their suits, you see it all the time watching NBA. I think NBA is a great example too, just because they're so long, but that, that swagger walk, man, it's like, we talk about it and you talk about athletes having it. And it's probably because it is, it is a little bit of an indicator in how they are moving and why they have the movement options that they do have. Uh, before we go into, before we end the podcast here, I do kind of want to talk about your Instagram tag, which is trained like a savage in that mindset yeah. piece that you talked about. And something that I'm interested in now is, is like, I'm, I'm talking to you and you, you're obviously like a very, a very deep thinker about all this stuff. And, and I think about my thought process too. And like, what I say all the time is like, keep chopping wood. Uh, and like that continual process of like consistency. And I say all the time, like, if you want to get really good at something, like you got to get obsessed about something and being obsessed about something is going to allow you to do it for 10 years, like with maximal effort and maximum intent. And that 10 years and that process of consistency is what's going to lead to like amazing results. But how do you balance like that train like a savage mindset to where you don't get stuck in the mindset that it seems like you and I were both stuck in where it was like, just work more, just grind, just keep going. Like, how, how do you how do you balance that with your athletes? And for me, it's like it, it's personal, too. It's like some athletes literally just need to be told that to just because they, they think too much, like they think too much and they're, they're too much in the books and they just need to be told like it almost is a little bit meatheadish with them. It's like you do just need to work more like you do. You need to get out of your head for a little bit. And we just need to work. But then there are athletes I catch like it's like myself. It's like that athlete is me. If I tell that athlete to work more, he is just going to grind himself through a wall yep. and like we're going to be missing so many pieces. So with that mindset piece, like how are you implementing this and how are you implementing that approach to spot athletes like yourself and help athletes like yourself out of that without taking that magic away? Because it is like what allows you and I to get to space spots that we get is training like a savage is like keep shopping. But you want to be able to like, again, yin and yang and be able to have that flow spot to it to where you're not just running your head through a wall you you have that hard work you're able to keep chopping you you're able to keep doing these things but you're able to just like do it almost in that reflexive way and that the way that is drive train smarter not harder type thought process yeah no that's that's definitely a um a thing that i i struggled with initially like when i was when i was programming but um <clears throat> it's it's making sure that you're staying on top of what your athletes are kind of feeling and paying attention to, um, you know, are there points in the workout in which they're stretching certain muscles or like moving a certain way? Like, are they, you know, cranking on their neck a little bit or are they like, you know, shaking out their arms a little bit, like paying attention to, okay, what can we do tomorrow to help alleviate that or help with, um, you know, the soreness that's going to come from that, right? Like just staying in tune with, with what's going on. So making sure that you stay on top of that is probably, you know, the quintessential thing to making sure that you don't get stuck in a mindset where you're just basically running them through a wall. And then also, um, 
using a lot of different stuff from my backgrounds as far as like the training goes um, to basically implement um, new things, new stimuluses so that they're not getting just bored doing the same thing over and over and over again, whether that be, um, okay, so today's going to be a lighter day. Maybe we work on some, you know, vision reactionary training. Um, you know, today's going to be, um, a bullpen day. So maybe after their bullpen, they don't want to run five miles, you know, something like that. Like it just kind of, it just kind of depends on the day and then also making sure that you're in tune with kind of what's going on with them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, again, every, every great coach that I bring on here, I kind of ask a similar question and almost every single time the answer is pay attention. Like if you just pay attention to your athletes, if you just listen to your athletes, like a lot of the coaching becomes so easy. Cause it's like, you, you say like, if they're cranking on the next side, that's something I watch all the time is like watching all the athlete, like what they're doing, like shaking out the arm. Like there's probably, there's probably either whether they're thinking about it or not, there's probably subconsciously something there that is bugging them or that is popping up that if you just watch, like if you just pay attention to your athletes and you leave the clipboard, like if you just set the clipboard down for 10 seconds, there's going to be so much information in the environment around you that you're able to pick up on and help you coach. And it's almost like, again, it's almost organic in a sense. It's like, okay, that, that is continually happening. We can kind of organically change that for next week's program, but you don't have to be stuck to your clipboard and, and miss all of that. Right. And, and one of the, one of the things that I kind of shifted my perspective on um, is when I first started out training, um, I focused a lot on, strength at joints, um, which I think is, is kind of natural as far as like, um, you know, RDLs, making sure we're hinging, um, bicep curls, chin up, whatever the case may be. I kind of flip my perspective on, okay, I'm going to pay more attention to the actual fascial lines and where are those points that may be tight, tender, sore, whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, just so I can understand, okay, if there's a problem upstream, let's check downstream on the same meridian line or fascia line, whatever you want to call it, where, where is the disconnect, right? Like if they're having pain in their, their pinky and it's all the way up to their hand, well, what's going on that backside of the arm in the, in the shoulder and the rhomboid in that deep front fascial line that may be triggering that tightness or that tingling sensation or what have you right like let's check all the lines to make sure that everything downstream isn't causing something upstream yeah do you, do you follow uh dan foley by chance i do not no so he just he just uh he's massive in the, the fascial chains but he I, he was one of the very first guests i had on this podcast um and it was funny because when i had him on it was like no following nothing and now he's totally blown up in the fascial world and he just released a a course on uh like um i can't remember the name of it but it's a whole course on fascial like points and meridian trains yep. and and how to implement it into the world of athletics so he uh, definitely a guy to check out he, he's a he's a yoke strength og like he's a dog he's awesome. one of the smart smartest people i've ever met in the fascial training world so that's great but coach or i guess not coach cam thank you for being on the podcast this is awesome yeah absolutely brother thanks for having me thank you guys for listening keep chopping wood Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.